the brand new book, which has uh, certainly made an impact uh, around this entire world, is, in call, is called Rebbe, The Life and Teachings of Menachem M. Schneerson, the most influential rabbi in modern history. The author is Joseph Telushkin, who I've been anxious to meet for the last, I would say, 30 years or so, and I am honored that he is visiting us this morning here at JM at the AM. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning to you. Good morning, Nachum. I'm very, very pleased to be here. Back in the late 70s and early 80s, it was your, I guess, first book, if there was one before that you could tell us, Eight Questions. At that time, it was known as Eight Questions. That is correct. People ask about Judaism. It had a major impact on me in my high school and college years. And since then, you should know, in all seriousness, I've been anxious to speak with you and meet you, and today I have the opportunity. By the way, how did eight become nine? What was the question that was added? Do you remember before we talk about this book? Uh, yeah, I'll tell you how it became nine. <laughs> when my friend Dennis Prager and I wrote the book, we were in our mid-twenties, and uh, we self-published it. And some years later, Simon & Schuster bought it from us, and they said, look, we don't want to lose all of your old readers. Maybe So we edited the book, because it was six years later. We right. made it better. And they asked us to add on a question, and the question they asked us to add on is still relevant. Is there a difference between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism? Fantastic. Relevant is not the word. Every every young Jewish kid right. should be reading that question mm-hmm. and getting the answer to it. So I thank you. It was a, uh, a remarkable experience back then reading your books, and great to meet you today. Was it a scary experience to write this book about the Lubavitcher Rebbe? And I'll tell you what I mean. Um, uh, look, you you and your family knew the Rebbe somewhat too relatively well, depending who in your family it was. And I am sure that you were thinking during the five years of your research how uncomfortable the Rebbe would be that somebody is writing about him. At the same time, I have a feeling, knowing the greatness of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, that he also felt that if someone could gain, could enhance their life by reading about his life, that would be a big bonus. So how would you put it? Scary experience or just the opposite? Well, first of all, I think your perception is correct. I think the Rebbe would have been personally uncomfortable having his life examined because he was about Torah, right. you know, not not his person. But I think he would react, as you said, if, they, if that examination could lead people closer, he would like it. Well, number one, I didn't go in thinking I was going to spend five years. I went in thinking it was going to be two years. And then what happened is the incredible amount of data that there was available, the number of people to interview, the 200 volumes of of teachings of the Rebbe, you know, made it a very, very demanding thing. And there was another reason why it took five years and not two. The Rebbe very rarely spoke about himself. So it's very hard to write a biography of a person who was as unself-revealing as the Rebbe was. And so, so much of the conclusions and so much of the material in the book came from interviewing people and in their interactions with the Rebbe, you could glean things about the Rebbe. It was scary at the beginning. This was the longest it's ever taken me to find my voice in writing a book. I haven't generally done biographies. And uh, to try and capture the Rebbe in a way that really represents, that I tried to really represent the way he thought and the way he spoke, and I'm not arrogant enough to say I did it fully, but I think I got some intimations of it. It took me, that actually did take me two years until I was 
sort of stylistically writing and had captured the voice I wanted to capture. This is a HarperCollins release, correct? That's correct. And maybe that helps, but nonetheless, it, it must be surprising to most observers in the literary world that this has become a New York Times bestseller, that it's at the top of the list everywhere, and it's become a worldwide sensation. How, Joseph Telushkin, do you explain it? By the way, it's interesting. Uh, a friend of my daughter's, who was applying for a position at the New Yorker, walked in, and he noticed on the desk of the editor was a copy of the book. And this friend of hers was, you know, a religious kid. He was wearing a kippah. So the editor picked up the book and said, it's now number 15 on Amazon. Who would have thought? Exactly. How do you explain it? The well, one of the points I make in the book, and the subtitle of the book, is that he's not only the most influential, I actually think he's the most well-known rabbi mm. since Maimonides. He's known in a lot of circles, not just in the from world. First of all, Chabadnik's photograph is, is recognized in many places. Right. The only rabbi who ever got the Congressional Gold Medal, and the two co-sponsors of it were John Lewis, the civil rights icon and very close associate of Martin Luther King, and who actually said on the day that he was given the Congressional Gold Medal, I only regret that Dr. King never met him. And his co-sponsor was Newt Gingrich, a rather conservative Republican. And uh, Lewis said this is probably the only issue on which Gingrich and I <laughs> have ever had occasion to agree. So then you'll wonder, okay, so number one, there are non-Jews. I'll tell you an odd detail about the book. Amazon categorizes books in many, many categories. And for the first month after the book came out, and it sounds weird, but the book was number one in the category of Christian leadership. <laughs> now, obviously, it meant that Christians who were looking for books on religious leadership were taken by this. So then you'd think, okay, so there'll be certain religious Christians interested. Right. Then you find out that Eric Yaffe, the longtime president of the Union for Reform Judaism, in 2003 declared at a convention of the Union with thousands of people present, it's hard for me to say this, but I must say it nonetheless. We have to learn from the example of Chabad wow. and from the example of the Rebbe. Wow. And then, of course, there's the Rebbe's impact throughout the Orthodox world, right. in which he really starts the whole Baal Tshuva movement, the whole notion of reaching out to Jews that with any one mitzvah, you can get, you can capture somebody. And the traditional attitude in the Orthodox world was more of an all-or-nothing attitude. And so suddenly people realize we have a lot to learn from the Rebbe as well. So I think there was like an upsurge of interest. You know, something just struck me as you were speaking about this. The um, To us in the Orthodox community, so, you know, Chabad means a certain thing, and obviously it has an impact. And, if you know, if you're in Singapore, you have a place to eat and all that uh, at the Chabad house. But we sometimes forget or don't realize how people in, you know, in every state in the Union and everywhere around the world notice these rabbis and meet with them and, and see the Rebbe's emissaries constantly. So it's, 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 it's the whole network that he established that really makes him as influential, as popular, and as well-known as he was and continues to be. Okay, so here's my trivia question for you. Chabad is now represented in 49 of the 50 states. I have to admit, Rabbi Stone from Chabad of the Lower East Side just told me this. So I'm going to know the answer. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I believe I believe Mississippi just got it, right? Mississippi did, so now so it's South only Dakota. South Dakota. <laughs> and in about 80 countries. So my wow. friend Dennis Prager was at the Chabad house having a Shabbat meal with 15 other Jews in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. And this is another aspect of the Rebbe that gets to the heart of this. He initiates 
what, as far as I can tell, is the first attempt in all of Jewish history to reach every Jewish community and every Jew in the world. And that was a very, very remarkable attempt. Jonathan Sachs, of course, the former chief rabbi of England, puts it in a very poetic way, and Sachs creates very powerful images. He said, if the Nazis tried to hunt down every Jew in hate, the Rebbe wanted to hunt, hunt down every Jew in love. And he was therefore willing to reach out in a variety of ways. Obviously, one aspect of it, the Rebbe was an enormous Talmud Chacham. He was an enormous scholar of the traditional Jewish texts, knew, was constantly conducting Hadranim, you know, when he had completed Talmudic texts, and he wanted his followers to be aware, and that's why he spoke and learning a great deal. But he also wanted to do outreach to all Jews at whatever level uh, he could reach them. And he knew that any mitzvah had the capacity to reach. This is what I'm going to say now is not widely known. When the Rebbe initiated one of the campaigns most associated with Chabad, the tefillin campaign, mm-hmm. in which people would be stopped on the street, are you Jewish? Have you put on tefillin? In segments of the Orthodox world, he was widely criticized. Now, we could understand why... Less observant Jews might be very uncomfortable with Jews doing this in public. It's embarrassing. But why in the Orthodox world? Because there were certain figures who felt that non-observant Jews shouldn't be putting on tefillin. A person's going to put on tefillin, and then he'll be eating unkosher food in a restaurant. A woman's going to light Shabbat candles and then violate other Shabbat laws. And the Rebbe's innovative thinking was... Every mitzvah can be the vehicle through which you lead a person back. And if you have that innate love of the person, so you're not looking at them and thinking, oh, they don't do this, they don't do that. You're thinking what they are doing. And and this, you see, because we're all familiar with the fact that the most famous law in the Torah is love your neighbor as yourself. Hillel, Akiva say this is the central teaching. But we also know that it was not widely observed in Jewish life. The rabbis actually attribute the destruction of the Second Temple to causeless hatred, to right. sinat chinam within the community. Just the opposite of that uh, edict or dictum. Yeah, right. right. And what's the reason? Because nobody thinks they're guilty of sinat chinam. Everybody can justify why they hate somebody else. So the Rebbe was looking for reasons to love somebody else. This Jew doesn't keep anything. It doesn't mean he's a non-religious person. It means exposing to things and doing it in a loving way. And people picked up on that sense that the Rebbe really loved them, that it was not a trick. He didn't act lovingly only to get them to do mitzvot. He loved them for who they were. Joseph Tolushkin is here. The book is called Rebbe. Highly recommended. Let me ask you uh, to help me understand a couple of things about the Rebbe himself. Um, He could not have demanded all that he demanded from his emissaries if he himself was not as committed 20 to 24 hours a day Mm -hmm. to this entire pursuit. It was because of this example that he set that he was able to expect that from his uh, constituents, from his uh, emissaries around the world. Uh, I ask about his stamina. It's something I bring up with every member of Chabad. How was it, especially at his older age, which is when I had met him, obviously, uh, uh, through, through your book, I, I met the younger Rebbe a little bit mm-hmm. as well. How was it that someone could have what I call these superhuman uh, traits, including the stamina to be up for days at a time or get very, very little sleep and to respond to every request and to be on top of everything. I mean, are we talking about somebody 
who had qualities that simply no other human being had. I don't want to say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, I don't think it. I think he worked on himself very, very hard. And the second reason I don't want to say that is, is because the more we make him seem to be an ethereal super, then, then ironically, right. there is less to be learned from him. Right. We learn more from a person. Now, this was obviously an aspect of his, from a young age, his father-in-law had said of him at 4 a.m., he's either going, getting up or going to sleep. You know, he always had that. And, and that when he was a young man. And that's when he was a right. young man. We have evidence. He would, yes, we have evidence that he would spend 16 hours a day at one point in his life in learning, and uh, and then would add on doing some secular studies because we know that at a young age he attended university classes first in Russia, then in Germany, then in France. He had a very wide-ranging intellect and an extraordinary memory. Uh, but what he demanded of his, of his emissaries, he demanded of other people as well. And ironically, not ironically, it's a happy irony, I'm, one of the people I'm talking about is your father. Uh, the, when your father was doing work for the Memorial Foundation for Jewish Culture, the Rebbe on one occasion asked him to undertake a certain task in Eastern Europe. Right. And your dad found it, your dad, Allah Shalom, found it to be much more difficult and even a little dangerous and and he felt the need to tell the Rebbe. He wanted the Rebbe to know that he had carried it out, but that it wasn't quite as simple right. as he thought it was. It was a rough mission. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, and as your da father put it, I came back and gave the Rebbe a report, and I concluded that the Rebbe should know that this was not an easy task for me. It was very difficult. The Rebbe looked at me quizzically and said, Rabbi Siegel, since when did you make a contract with the Almighty for an easy life? <laughs> and at a speech your father delivered after the Rebbe's death, he explained how this one seemingly throwaway line, uttered in fewer than ten seconds, permanently affected him. Even though a task will not be easy, each of us must do what we know we were put on earth to do. Right. So that, you know, what I try and do in the book Rebbe is identify what I call seven virtues of the Rebbe, which I think help account for the movement's growth even subsequent to his death, because these are guidelines on how to live. And one of them, as I call it, is uh, anything worth doing. And then I'll ask an audience, how does that statement conclude? And everybody mm -hmm. says it's worth doing well. The Rebbe's attitude was anything worth doing is worth doing now. And you'll find this as a characteristic of Shluchim, but I have found since I wrote the book and have been pushing this for everybody. We all have telephone calls that we know we have to make, we put off. We all have people in the hospital that we know we have to visit, but we put it off. We all have tasks, vocational tasks, spiritual tasks, and we always can put them off. And then if you really start thinking, if it's worth doing, do it now. And it's moving. And, 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 you're, and you made such an important point earlier that, that I think applies to this. You, you would contend that he was like, quote-unquote, any other person, but worked on himself to get to that point where doing something now became the most important thing, became something that, was, you know, that happened automatically with him. I believe so. Now, again, he was endowed. You know, IQs, unfortunately, or fortunately, are not distributed evenly. Right. He clearly had an innately very high level of intelligence, but... Do I argue nobody else had such an intelligence? No, I think he cultivated it to an extent that others didn't. He had a spiritual affinity 
And he cultivated these things. With an amazing discipline. I remember one of the Shluchim conferences. Someone got up and spoke about the time management skills that he had. How not a moment was wasted. How if he realized that Mincha started 30 seconds later than he thought, he would utilize those 30 seconds. You know, we're, we're standing around waiting for Mincha to start. He, he's not doing that. You, you know, you, you just na- zeroed in on a very, very important attribute, so I'm going to elaborate on it sure. for a minute because I think this has relevance to every everyone out there listening. The Rebbe, at one of his sichas, at one of his talks, spoke of how he had learned the trait from his father-in-law of what he called Hatzlacha Bizman, how to succeed with time. And I'd venture to guess, if you were all standing here and I asked you by showing of hands, how many of you feel your time often is wasted or you don't accomplish what you want, that most people would raise their hands, and the others probably wouldn't be telling the truth. <laughs> so, Hasfashalom, I don't want to cast libel on anyone. Okay, anyway, so the Rebbe told of an incident in 1927, when he was, of course, not yet Rebbe. He was, in fact, not even yet married to Chaim Mushka, the daughter of the previous Rebbe, but he was a very, it was understood they were getting married, and he already had a very close relationship with his father-in-law, the sixth Rebbe, who was about to take a trip uh, from St. Petersburg, where he lived, to Moscow. And it was going to be a very unpleasant trip. He knew how he was being shadowed by the KGB. They were constantly looking for excuses to arrest him. Subsequently, he was arrested, was going to be executed, and an international outcry saved him. So it was nerve-wracking. Right. The Rebbe, the That's young Menachem Mendel, was very nervous. And he goes into his father-in-law's office, and he sees his father-in-law serenely, serenely, going over papers, editing things, looking at this. And he says, how could you be so calm? And he said, I learned this from my own father. No matter what we do, there is a limited amount of time in the day. There is no way we can add a second to the day. So all we have is that the time is in front of us. If while we're working on something, we borrow from the past and start thinking about things that happened in the past or things in the future that we're nervous about and that we can't change, it makes it impossible for us to be fully focused on this task. What I ask people to do, and I try and do it, is don't start and saying overnight I'm going to do this. Try and do it for five minutes at a time. For five minutes at a time, really try and work on what you're doing and and resist because, you know, other thoughts of other things come in. This became so much a part of Menachem Mendel Schneerson that people who had the briefest encounters with him repeatedly emphasized that they felt that during that time they were what most mattered to him. Correct. Mm-hmm. I read that a lot in your book about people who were given very short pieces of advice by him. You know, advice that, like you mentioned about my father's encounter right. in 10 seconds. I mean, you know, short pieces of advice that were life-changing, life-changing experiences just based on these few words from the Rebbe. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I understand the point you're making in terms of time management, but even beyond that, how he was able to concentrate in a very short meeting with somebody with, I can only, only imagine how much on his mind. So you've just taught us that it, when you're sitting and doing a task, it doesn't pay to regret the past and it doesn't pay to worry about the future. It pays, as the Rebbe would say, to concentrate on what the, what is happening in the moment, uh, that's right. what's most. So it's, it's the only thing you can control, right? Now, e- even if you're being sentenced to prison the next day, right, or that day. Yeah, right. Now there might be times when you need to devote times to thinking about right. the past or to thinking about the future, but do it for that reason. That's what you're then doing, and and thinking about it. But what many many of us do is we're constantly living in the past, in the present, and in the future, 
and it's making it impossible for us to fully utilize the present. Joseph Tolushkin is here. The book is called Rebbe. Um, more on trying to understand the Rebbe. You, you know your modern Jewish history, to say the least. Is this an only in America story? Is it even possible to conceive that a Rebbe who was, I don't know, in communist Russia and remained there or somewhere else on this globe outside of New York and the United States could have pulled this off, could have gone ahead and created this network of such influence around the world? Certainly in the current period, I don't think that could have been the case. Number one, Jews who were stuck in countries like communist Russia were going to get no outside recognition. And the more Jewish they became, the more they were endangered. The Rebbe had an intuitive understanding <clears throat> that there was something different in America. And I, I'm going to u- ex- elaborate for a moment what sure. I mean. His father-in-law, when he came to the United States, you know, was immediately told, you can't carry out in the United States what you did in Eastern Europe. The Jews here aren't open to that religiosity. And he got upset. And then at a certain point, though, he said, America is not different. And what he meant by that expression was American Jews are not different. If we come to them with the right message of Judaism, we can reach them. The Rebbe, though, understood that America as a country was different. There was an openness to Jews, and actually that openness was expanding and expanding in in the very fact that he <clears throat> becomes the first rabbi, the only rabbi to ever get the Congressional Gold Medal. Right. There is an openness to Jews. In 2000, I remember when I was a kid in high school in 1964 and Barry Goldwater was nominated as the Republican candidate, so Harry Golden made his famous joke, I always knew the first Jew nominated to be president would be an Episcopalian. (laughs) Had anybody told us in 1964 that a Jew would be on a national party ticket in 2000 and that he wouldn't campaign on Saturday because it was Shabbat, it would have sounded ridiculous. The Rebbe picked up on this that non-Jews respected Jews for their observance. He had, I, I have in the book an incredibly interesting exchange, very respectful, but, but a real disagreement with the Rebbe and Rabbi Joseph Glazer, who was the head of the Reform Rabbinical Association, right. in which Glazer insistently tried to get Chabad to stop doing the candle lightings, the Hanukkah menorah lighting ceremonies. And, and the Rebbe said, look how many people were reaching. And Glazer was concerned it's going to spark anti-Semitism. Court cases were brought against it. Now there are many Reform and Conservative rabbis who sponsor such things. So the Rebbe understood there was an openness. And when Jews are so hidden about their tradition, it actually doesn't win them esteem among non-Jews. They just make the Jews look like elitists who look down on them. When an emissary around the world would come to the Rebbe or communicate with him about their accomplishments in a certain city or country, the Rebbe generally had one response, and that was, go do more. Correct. Doesn't it seem counter to the American culture, the way we raise our, or the way we're told to raise our children today, when someone is, instead of being given a really good pat on the back and telling them, you know, what you've accomplished is incredible, uh, that, that the response, in fact, is do more, wouldn't you think that that might breed some resentment for, uh, from these emissaries who've done so much to that point? You know what I suspect? I suspect that the Rebbe knew individuals well enough to know to whom to say that and to whom to not. I don't explore this in the book, but I suspect there are people that he might have known were functioning at their limits. There was a uh, Jewish businessman who was a big supporter of the Rebbe named David Chase. New Jersey. Yeah, okay, right, Right. yes. And uh, to Chase, the Rebbe said, listen, a human being is like an engine. 
it should never be allowed to be sluggish if it's only functioning at 60%, but don't try and function at 100% either. So the Rebbe, I think, you know, had that awareness, and he gave people pride. One of the very, very first shluchim in America, uh, in Detroit, the oh, shli- uh, Beryl Shemtov. Beryl Shemtov, who goes out as a shliach with his wife a week after they were married, and in those days, it was in the 50s, you took a train to right. Detroit. And the Rebbe found out they were traveling in coach. And that's a very long trip to just be sitting. In the, he says, you're a king and a queen. You know, you've just been just married. married. And he made sure that they got a sleeper compartment. And I could tell 55 years later when I was out at the, at the Ohel and I, and I had occasion to interview Rabbi Shemtov, the glow of satisfaction. He felt appreciated. He felt appreciated by the Rebbe. So he knew how to give a pat on the back. <laughs> he did know how to give a pat on the back. But because people knew that he was always pushing himself for more, right. you know, they they could accept that, that, that this was a beginning stage. What did you think, and I apologize for the potpourri, you know, not knowing what direction I'm going in, but I had a series of questions I just wanted to bounce off of you. What do you think of the of the fact that he recommended to many not to consider going to college, yet took his own further academics so seriously. Okay, there are a few comments about that. Number one, the Rebbe argued that because he had gone to college, he had known the pitfalls in it. I think what was more fundamental to the Rebbe's perception was at the time he went to university, he had already mastered much, much of Jewish knowledge. He was already a Talmud Chacham when he went in the 20s. The same was true of Rabbi Soloveitchik, and right. he and Soloveitchik, he and Rabbi Soloveitchik became quite friendly in Berlin. They both had acquired. Why did I think he wanted the people to have that arsenal of knowledge? He knew that the college environment tended to attract faculty members, many of whom were not, were highly critical of religion and could undermine religion particularly in the social sciences, which almost by definition are more relativistic in their approach. You know, you don't, you're studying the universal human experience, and they're very, a lot of things are just attributed to cultural differences that might actually have moral implications. So I think, first of all, his primary opposition was people going to college at the age in the United States when people typically do, right. when their minds are very plastic and opened uh, to being influenced. So it's not an uncommon phenomenon that kids who have a fairly s- a strong Jewish educational background, particularly if they go far away from home to out-of-town universities, um, live on campus, it was quite common, certainly in those times, for many of them to become less religiously observant. Today, there's, you know, th- that's one of the reasons the Rebbe, on the one hand, did discourage people attending college, and on the other hand, and this is interesting, there are Chabad's now set up at over 200 universities. Correct. And one might think that these Chabad groups are then trying to encourage kids to leave and go learn in a yeshiva, right. which they don't do. The Rebbe, very often when people who already were in university came to him, would tell them not to drop out and not to waste the time they had already done. Now, that shows he didn't think college was a totally trafe thing. because Had to be for the right person, though. Well, because if somebody said, oh, I discovered in the middle of the meal that my food was unkosher, the Rebbe wouldn't say, well, but you have to finish it because you don't want to waste food. <laughs> right. 
but if he felt that way about university, he would have told people to drop out. So I think he had a more complicated relationship. But to be honest to him, he generally discouraged uh, his 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 followers and those over whom he had sway. If they're going to do it, do it at a somewhat later period. Isn't it interesting? And I don't know if uh, I got through most of the book, not all of it. So I don't. I don't. I don't think you you address this. One of the purposes of the book was not to examine Chabad versus other Hasidic groups. You don't you don't analyze its behavior compared to other Hasidic groups. But nonetheless, I'd love to ask you: Don't you see a marked difference? in the way that Chabad and the Lubavitcher Rebbe operated and continue to operate compared to other Hasidic groups, it seems like the Rebbe always encouraged his emissaries and even those outside of the movement who he considered emissaries to think on their own, to reach their own conclusions and decisions very often, while we know, and not not to criticize, just an observation, that in many other Hasidic groups people will not move or make any significant step without the direct um, advice of the Rebbe, without being told, you know, exactly what to do or not to do. Okay, without commenting on other groups, because right. I really haven't studied them, uh, you know, carefully, uh, one of the chapters I have in the book is I call it Creating Fearlessness, Creating Leaders. Uh, Rabbi Groner, a close, a very close oh, yeah. secretary of the Rebbe, told me he once came to the Rebbe with a halachic, a legal query, and the Rebbe, instead of giving him an answer, said, you're a rabbi like me. You can go and paskin. You can go and rule. And then when Groner, Rabbi Groner studied the issue and came back to the Rebbe, the Rebbe smiled and said, that's the conclusion I would have reached. There was case after case like that. Rabbi Yitzchak Meir Hecht in New Haven is despondent. He's feeling overwhelmed. He hasn't had the success he wanted. He says, I'm handing it all over to you. The Rebbe solved my issues. And the Rebbe said, I want you to know I sent a rabbi to New Haven named Yitzchak Meir Hecht. Apparently, you don't know him. I advise you to go and meet him. <laughs> in and reference find, to himself. In reference to himself. So the Rebbe wanted uh, wanted people to do that. He empowered Shluchim. Uh, uh, rabbi Feller in in uh, in Minneapolis is being sent out as an early shliach. He says to the Rebbe, he wants concrete suggestions. The Rebbe said, be flexible. Fellow was a big baseball fan when Sandy Koufax came in the World Series to not pitch his famous right. game. So Feller had the idea to bring Tefillin to his hotel. Would That's a true documented story. True. He yes. actually went to Sandy yes. Koufax he went, yes, during the World the Series. Yes. What he did was he went to the hotel. At the hotel, I have this through an interview. At the hotel, they somehow uh, looked at him and assumed, oh, this must be Koufax's rabbi. Now, remember, non-Jews often think right. Jews, Have many rabbi. Jews are religious. <laughs> right. You know, They're not as aware that the percentage of Jews who are observant isn't so high. And so he got up to the room. He said, now, again, remember, Feller was a baseball fan, which the Rebbe wasn't. So right. I don't know if the Rebbe would have been aware that Koufax was a southpaw, right. that he needed a different <laughs> pair of tefillin. That means lefty, folks. Yes, right, that he needed a different <laughs> pair of tefillin. So, uh, don't so, tell me he brought lefty tefillin. Yes, he knew to do that. <laughs> now, Koufax, though, did not want to put it on. Maybe he thought it would be right. too showy, but he certainly kept it and thanked him. But that's the sort of flexible activity that, you know, he empowered people. And that's the phenomenon of why the movement has been able to be so strong, even since his death, because he left models of behavior and models of empowerment. You know, that would be a question if the Rebbe was still around to ask him, what do you think of what Koufax did that Yom Kippur? I am sure the Rebbe would think that that was 
unbelievable for I mean look what it did for Jewish pride look what yes. it did for the Jewish world and uh, that's that why he wanted to reach out at any level to get Jews to do something Jewishly for the sake of the person doing it this turned out to be and Kofax did not expect this this turned out to be a very significant element in his life right. he did something and became right never thought became, it would be that big of a deal right and it the effect it had because we know when prominent people do things, uh, it causes other people to take it uh, to take it more seriously. Right. Um, Joseph Talishkin is here. The book is called Rebbe, Harper Collins release available everywhere. Um, what do you think of the notion uh, of the Rebbe making all of his shluchim independent? I'm su- I'm sure I can only imagine that certain emissaries were in a panic when they realized that the financial responsibility for their Chabad house eventually would become their responsibility, right? On the other hand, any good parent knows that if you cut the apron strings and, you know, let somebody fly, you know, let your children get out there and become independent, it's probably the best thing for them. I guess that follows right along with his philosophy, right? That he wanted to create leaders, as you mentioned earlier. Right. And I think certainly in the early days when he was handpicking leaders, because there weren't that many at the beginning, there weren't that many shluchim, I think he was very aware of who it was that he was sending out. And I'm sure that he exercised caution, but he knew the more successful leaders he sent out, the more they would in turn become models to others. And then people would think, oh, I can do this. See, because if the only one in the movement who was succeeding was the Rebbe, it would actually discourage people because they'd think, I don't have his commitment, I don't have his intellectual capabilities. Mm -hmm. But then suddenly they start seeing what other shluchim are doing, and I think that becomes uh, models, models you're, for them. You're sitting in a state that uh, whose Chabad network is led by Moshe Herson. Of course. Great choice by the Rebbe, as we see years uh-huh. later. I mean, we're talking about an unbelievable leader. By the way, you end Chapter 6. If you don't mind, may I read from Joseph Telushkin's book for a moment? I would be honored. I hope you consider it a dramatic reading, but I just have to read this because you talk about that leadership and the fact that he wanted to create not followers, but leaders. Correct. People to go and lead. The gift the Rebbe gave his followers, which enabled them to touch and challenge people two and three times their age, with far more secular knowledge and professional attainments, was the belief that they were on a mission for something higher than themselves, to serve God and that God would not have sent them on such a mission unless he believed in them, and the Rebbe would not have sent them unless he believed in them. And by carrying out their personal missions, these shluchim became leaders. They became visionaries. They became proactive. They became fearless. And that might be the most Uh important part. Nothing stops these emissaries and their incredible wives from just continuing to progress and trying and doing everything that's possible to help the Jewish community and wherever they may be to help the general community as well. That is definitely true. Which is unbelievable. And you point out, you point out so brilliantly in this paragraph, there are people that they're dealing with who are two and three times their age with plenty more secular knowledge, professional attainments. These are not, these are not college graduates. These are young rabbis who are dealing with people who might have PhDs, might have millions of dollars in the bank, might be the most influential people in their communities, and they make such an impact on their lives. It's just an unbelievable phenomenon. Because people are incredibly struck by intelligence and sincerity. The combination of the two is very, very important. And I'll give you an example. One of the odd phenomenon about Chabad, and it's well known, 
is that a disproportionate percentage of its contributions come from Jews who are not halachically observant right. in, in many areas. And so the question is, why is that? Okay, but so okay, so I'm going to relate it with uh-huh. a little story. Sure. For many years, as I'm sure many of your listeners recall, there used to be a little classified ad every Friday morning on the front page of the New York Times. Sure. The only such ad that appeared. Jewish women and girls, because the Rebbe, remember, pushed children from the age of three to light candles, right. which was not the minhag, uh, which was not the custom among Right, we generally had married women in the community lighting. Right. He and wanted, he wanted all it, the girls to light. Right, right. he wanted the girls to light. And so it's a Jewish women and girls candle lighting tonight is at 6-11. Okay. So number one, a lot of traditional, a lot of observant Jews, people like yourself, myself, sometimes if we forgot when it is, we checked. And amazing on the front page of the New York Times. But many non-observant Jews were also struck by seeing that ad. On January 1st, 2000, the Times put out a millennial edition. And for that millennial edition, they also published a projected January 1st, 2100. A hundred years later. A hundred years later. I remember that. And a lot of it is very unfamiliar. It's a very different world. Should robots be allowed to vote in elections? You know, things that would take people. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the page was Jewish women and children, Jewish women and girls candle lighting tonight. A hundred years later. It turned out January 1st, 2100 really is a Friday. And it turned out that apparently an Irish Catholic editor at the Times, aware of that fact, called up someone in Chabad to find out if they had what time candle lighting would be. And I think that story explains why even many non-observant Jews support Chabad. Of one thing, they're sure. However different the world is going to be, January 1st, 2100, there will be Chabad. Women are going to be lighting Shabbat candles. And I think that story, in a sense, really symbolized that to Unbelievable. Them. Joseph Telushkin, does this tune sound familiar? <laughs> This is actually from a from a from bringing, from a gathering, right. where the Reb is inspiring everybody, and the entire crowd breaks out in song. Ufaratsta. If you'd have to give Chabad an anthem, that would be it, right? right. That would be. And the, you shall spread forth right. east, west, north, south. Right. And I think, as you point out in the book, a word that appears only one time in the entire Chumash, right? Right. And and that was of course Chabad uh, spreading out. The the what about the influence of these public lectures? We know we, we we read in your book about amazing encounters, personal encounters with very prominent Jews and non-Jews that the Rebbe had. Obviously, we learn a lot of lessons from those. What about the public encounters? I'm I'm not even um, uh, uh, speaking so much about the uh, uh, the shiurim, the the Torah classes that he would give, but these fambrengins, these gatherings. How important was it to the whole spirit of the movement? Oh, first of all, it was extraordinarily important because, number one, the Rebbe would also list his priorities again, so they were sort of... Uh, his call to action took place yes, at the Fabringen. his call to actions, but also his call to learning. Generally, as the Fabringen went on, his talks would become, you know, also more esoteric. Uh, and then, so, you know, these were all features, but also it made people really feel unified. It brought them all together. They, in a sense, became an army but an army of love. So normally, when you feel the need to unify an army, 
it's not unified through a message of love. Right. It's usually being galvanized because of a common enemy. But here, it was being galvanized through love. And it struck me how effective it was. One of the things that struck me about the shluchim is I've not come across a... Look, the human nature being human nature, there must be instances of it, but I have not come across jealousy or envy among them. Now, I know, you know, I went to rabbinical school, I went to YU, but what I'm going to say now is true of Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, Reconstructionist. The general pattern was you get ordained and you go to a community. And usually when you're a young rabbi, your first community is either a very small community or you become an assistant to a very prominent rabbi with the understanding that after a few years you'll go elsewhere. So status in the rabbinical world in general comes from going to one place and then getting a better, a better quote, better pulpit in another city and a larger pulpit, and then ending up at one of the really large Jewish America, large cities at a very uh, affluent and large pulpit. Right. It's not the case. Chabad's the sole exception. Because of the insistent belief that each life is of infinite value, it made it possible for Shliach, even one who's in a small city, to have such great pride at what he and she, because remember, it's Shluchim, it's not an individual Shliach. Shluchim right. is a couple. That was another innovative feature. Right. You know, normally the term Rebetzin just simply means a woman married to a rabbi. She might be involved in the congregation, she might be involved in her own career. Here, the couple go out as a unit. And, uh, and they stay where they go, which gives it just sends a message to the community. By the way, they're staying where they go reflects something else as well. I quote the story in the book of Ariel Sharon saying to the Rebbe, because they had a very nice relationship, and he was trying to give the Rebbe a little a little critique. He said, you know, in the Israeli army, the commanders go first. Why don't you make Aliyah? Do you know how many tens of thousands of people would follow if you made Aliyah? And the Rebbe said... A commander in the army is only one model of leadership. Another model of leadership is the captain of a ship. And the captain of a ship is the last one to get off. And he said, and my emissaries, my shluchim know, and I know, you can't leave a community while you're still leaving. You can't leave a city while you're still leaving behind the Jewish community there. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Joseph Tolushkin is here. The book is called Rebbe, The Life and Teachings of Menachem M. Schneerson, the most influential rabbi in modern history. I love the encounters you talk about, um, the the um, yechidus that many people had with the Rebbe late at night. Uh, the, the the joke in Newark was that if my father was late for shul, he was either he, either he was in Israel and he was out of town, mm. or he was with the Rebbe because otherwise my father was never late for shul. And that meant obviously that these encounters ended at five six in the morning. Yes, and that's that was the whole point that uh, mm-hmm. that these would go all night. Yet another tribute to the Rebbe's stamina and his incredible. Uh, uh, his incredible victory against fatigue, which is still so hard to believe. The hours he stood at the Ohel, the hours he stood giving out dollars. Yes, that's right. I don't right. know why I'm so fascinated by it, but may, maybe because people think I have stamina with my schedule. I say to myself, it, it is nothing compared to what he did on a daily basis. It doesn't actually, come close. No. You, you also, with your schedule, I'm sure think about this, how you know you try to maximize your time and to not be fatigued, but it comes nowhere close to what he was able to achieve. Yeah, so, you know, now that you're saying that that's true, for a variety of reasons, I had very little, uh, I didn't sleep, I, I had little sleep last night, and I remember when I woke up in the morning, I know I had to get ready, 
I was meeting to, you know, I left the city at seven to be here for your show. And I remember, uh, the, one of the first thoughts I had when I woke up, gee, am I going to have time to have a nap today? <laughs> Meanwhile, there was a reform rabbi named Herbert Wiener, who in the 1950s wrote two articles about Chabad for Commentary Magazine. They were written from a very admiring stance. And, uh, and he remembered when he first became aware of the phenomenon in the mid-50s that the Rebbe would sometimes have Yechidison till four or five in the morning, maybe have a short break for sleep. And so he asked Rabbi Chodakov, the Rebbe's top aide, so what does he do the next morning? Does he sleep in the next morning? And Chodakov (laughs) says, no, the Rebbe's at his desk directing the activities of Chabad throughout the world. He said, when does he then sleep? And he says, Chodakov just sort of shrugged, (laughs) you know, with a smile. Uh, But this is what the Rebbe, this is what he does. All right, I'm starting to get grabbed by the clock, so I have to maximize this time, as we would say about the the Rebbe. Um, But I got sidetracked because I mentioned about the stamina. Tell me about encounters with non-Jewish people. Give me one example that fascinated you about an encounter with a, not not necessarily a religious non-Jewish person, but somebody from, you know, from completely from the outside world of what the Rebbe or we would consider our world who came and had an interesting encounter with Okay. The Rebbe lived, of course, in Crown Heights. Right. Crown Heights adjoins Bedford-Stuyvesant. 1968, the first black woman is ever elected to the House of Representatives. Oh. Obviously, there have been other blacks represented, but Shirley Chisholm, Shirley Chisholm sure. was, the first, uh, was the first black woman. Historic. And this was in 68, right. only four years after the Civil Rights Act, when the House was still dominated by a lot of old-time Southern Democrats. Southern Democrats in those days might have been liberal on some issues, but they were certainly, the old Southern Democrats were were not at all liberal on civil rights issues, and they decide to, you know, like a nasty trick, they put her on the Agriculture Committee. She represented... Coming from New York. (laughs) Right. She represented Bed-Stuyvesant, Crown Heights. She didn't want to get into Congress to be on the Agriculture Committee. One newspaper in New York headlined it, a tree grows in Brooklyn. Ooh. And she was really upset and vocal about her upset. She gets a call from Rabbi Chodakov that one of her constituents, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, would like to meet with her. So she comes in to meet with the Rebbe. She had met him once previously when she was running. The Rebbe would not endorse individual candidates, but would bless and meet with candidates. And he said, I understand you're very unhappy. And she said, I'm unhappy. I'm insulted. I wanted to do work on education, I wanted, you know, and the Rebbe said, but you're dealing with the Agriculture Committee, which deals with all the surplus food being created in America. Look at all the good that could be done. You represent many poor people. Shirley Chisholm subsequently became very involved in food stamps, in WIC, women, infants, and children. Fifteen years later, when she retired from Congress, David Lukens, who who worked as an aide for uh, Senator Moynihan, sure. was present when she gave her fair, at a farewell breakfast, and she spoke of this encounter with the Rebbe, and she said, if poor people today, poor children are getting more food, it's because that rabbi in Crown Heights had vision. And one of the things I really wanted to communicate in the book was, I didn't want to just tell the story of the Rebbe. I wanted to tell the story of what we can learn from the Rebbe. So when I go to those virtues of the Rebbe, the love of your neighbor, the focus on the individual, how do you become a leader? The careful choosing of words, the Rebbe's constant assertion of optimistic words. You gave an example in the book, you refused to call a hospital a Beit Cholim, which means a home for the sick. Right, Beit Refuah. Beit Refuah, home for the healing. Anything worth doing is worth doing now. So what I want to emphasize to people who are listening in is, 
this book actually has the teachings in it of the Rebbe that have the capacity to transform and elevate every every reader's life. And that's Jewish why, and non-Jewish, and Orthodox and non-Orthodox. And that's why this book is flying off the shelves in every genre for that exact okay. reason. Joseph Talishkin is here. I'm going to try to quickly go through major issues in the next five minutes. He refused, maybe that's the wrong word, you could tell me if there needs to be a better word, he refused to, to endorse or support Holocaust memorials. Explain. The Rebbe felt that ultimately here okay here i don't know that he ever said explicitly right. what i'm now saying that's why what i the way i portrayed it may be a little inaccurate right. right i don't think that the rebbe thought that in the long term the focus on the holocaust would be something that would help enrich or guarantee Jewish survival. Now, look, the Rebbe did not want to be misunderstood on this. Somebody said, you might think I'm doing this because I personally wasn't touched by the Holocaust, but he then listed all of the close relatives, including his brother, who were murdered. Right, and his sister-in-law and 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 brother-in-law who were murdered. Nonetheless, I think he understood that Jewish survival, possibly in that first generation, there was such a consciousness of the Holocaust. I'm part of that generation. I was born in '48. You know, not to give Hitler a posthumous victory. But ultimately, the message of Chabad was Shemcha Shel Mitzvah, the joy of doing a mitzvah. If if a man likes davening in the morning, a woman likes the Shabbat candles, they like studying of Torah, they like uh, celebrating Hanukkah, you know, all of these things, that's going to keep people wanting to be Jewish. In the year 2014, for a 20-year-old person or 15-year-old person, the Holocaust is not going to be central. And therefore, I think what the Rebbe really wanted to commemorate was not the death of the six million, but the way so many of them lived their lives. And that would translate into encouraging people to live a high-quality Jewish life in this country as well. Right. By the way, having said that, and I can't answer this because I don't know the answer, I certainly don't think he would have opposed the whole Holocaust memorial. Right. I think he would have found the memorial in Washington very important. Right. But I think what he would have been concerned about was enormous resources being spent on dozens and dozens uh, of memorials when, as he put it, he thought that, as he put it in a letter to a cousin of his who was involved in putting up a memorial in France, there are needs of the living that are very, very pressing. A lot of poor people that need to be fed, let's put it that way. And finally, um, and and I don't know if there's any legitimacy to this theory, and please, folks, don't don't think that that I'm trying to paint the Rebbe as such a you know, calculated person when it comes to this. But we, we, you talk about uh, the Soviet jury movement, and it was clear that the Rebbe um, uh, felt that things should be done behind the scenes. We know that he certainly fulfilled that promise, that mm. he would be involved behind the scenes, that's for sure. Uh, and, of course, people like ourselves, uh, you much more involved, but even me as a kid, were heading to rallies and demonstrations, and obviously, and, and many would argue that both were important, but we know where the Rebbe stood on this. Is it possible, is it possible that 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 privately the Rebbe really had no objection to the types of things that you and I were doing, but publicly felt that the best thing for the situation would be to, because he was so involved behind the scenes and because those operations were so essential, that he felt that publicly that needs to be his stand. Well, obviously I would like to have reached that conclusion right. because I was very active in the student struggle for Soviet Jewry. I think there's some basis to it. Uh, 
I think the Rebbe really was concerned that it could have a deleterious effect. I think he was very concerned at being very public in his opposition because he knew that the Soviets monitored his words and they and they would quote them, uh, you know, in arrests of other people. On the other hand, he knew that not the whole Jewish world was going to listen to him. So when he met with Rabbi Israel Miller, who at the time was the president of the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations, right. and tried to convince Miller to call off a demonstration, and Miller wouldn't do it, the Rebbe said, well, then if you're going to have that demonstration, make sure it gets on page one of the Times. Mm -hmm. Because I think he understood that the worst thing would be if there were public demonstrations and nobody showed up, because that would convince the that it had no future. By the way, Rabbi Miller, and I got this both from his son David, uh, uh, told me that he visited Russia in 64, and was allowed to actually speak at a synagogue, which was very unusual. But he came back to the Rebbe and with tears told the Rebbe that he had been taken to a warehouse. And he had seen hundreds of Torah scrolls there in the warehouse because there was no need for them. And he said to the Rebbe, if we raise money, the Soviets always want money, let's ransom those Torahs and we can use them in the United States and Israel. And the Rebbe said, don't do that. The time will soon come when those Torah scrolls will be used in Russia. And that was just the most remarkable prophetic statement because you know and I know, being involved in the Soviet Jewry movement in the mid-60s, we did not think there was going to be a revival of Jewish life in Russia. But he somehow knew. Your trips to Russia or trip took place when and what years? Uh, the first time I went to Russia was in 73. And uh, then I think then I couldn't really go back because I was listed on a criminal indictment as an anti-Russian agent. And in but, in '73, was the Rebbe's influence there uh, apparent to people like yourself who were visiting? Did you meet people yes, who spoke I of did. him? Or? Uh, yes, I did. I was able to give my to leave behind a pair of tefillin for a Chabad Chassid in in Moscow, which was immensely satisfying to me. But uh, but I most but honestly. Most of my encounters were with the more activist refuseniks, right. the ones who were demanding more pressure. And it's possible, therefore, that the Chabadniks would not have gone out of their way to interact with me because they didn't want to be identified, you know, with the uh, with the refuseniks at that time. They were following two different strategies. Right. But I'll tell you an interesting story, which I do relate in the book. Yaakov Herzog. Uh, who was a son of the late chief rabbi. And obviously, he had two sons. Chaim became the president of Israel. Yaakov was a directed the prime minister's office, was very close with Golda. And died relatively young. And died very young, unfortunately. Yes, you're right. He was 50, I think. Uh, He commented, and in fact, just yesterday I was speaking to Menachem Ganak of the OU, who, who mentioned this incident. And I mentioned the incident in the book where Herzog had been briefed about what the American government knew about Soviet Jewry. And one of the things that the State Department official told him was, he says, you know, the Soviets have managed through informers to infiltrate every organization in Russia of a particularly, a dis- that could be a dis- an organization of dissent, religious, non-religious, political, with the one exception of some obscure Jewish group headed by a rabbi in, in Brooklyn. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's quite a remarkable story. Unbelievable. Clearly the most influential rabbinic leader in modern history, you would argue, likely since the Rambam. Correct? I would. I certainly believe he's the most well-known since the Rambam. I say in modern history, 
Yeah, quite possibly since the run. I got to think more about that. But as I said, the most influential in modern history. But, but in many, many hundreds of years. Joseph Telushkin, it's called Rebbe, The Life and Teachings of Menachem M. Schneerson, the most influential rabbi in modern history. Highly recommended. It is an um, absolutely amazing read. I am honored that you were here today. Thank you so much for spending all this time here. Thank you so much for doing a tremendously good interview. Great, I, great questions. I, Thank you. I appreciate that. The book is called Rebbe. Get it, everybody. It's available everywhere. Final minutes on a Thursday at JM in the AM. Yeah.